Welcome to Narrative Responsibility, a podcast about examining the meta story of your life, how well it is serving you, and how to change it for the better. I'm Elena Wolf, relationship coach and life alignment mentor, and this is this week's new perspective. Hi there. I'm so glad you're here today. This is episode 20, The Ugly Duckling, an MBTI fable. So first of all, I'm going to give a disclaimer about my voice. I have been sick for the last week, like I started coming down with something as I was editing last week's episode, and by the next day, I was definitely ill, not just like, oh yeah, that was allergies or something. Um, So I think I can get through talking, but you are definitely treated to my lowest register. Enjoy. And also, since I did not have a lot of brain capacity after being in bed for two days and then basically having half-day capacities for work the rest of the week, um, I really didn't have my normal amount of preparation time for this episode. So I just decided to stick with the framework of MBTI and give an expanded look at how it can be used as a lens of interpreting a situation. Basically, how can you use this idea, this framework of of psychological type to create a different story out of an experience that you had? Specifically, I'm going to tell you more about my story because, of course, the most compelling accounts are always the first-hand ones primary source documents, as our history professors like to call them. <laughs> um, so here's, here is a primary source document about the power of the Myers-Briggs. <laughs> I'm sorry, I sometimes I make myself laugh. The general flow on this episode will be a quick reminder or maybe primer for some of you on how we as humans form emotional beliefs, basically how we form these inner narratives that we use to interpret our realities, and then how I experienced my family and culture before I knew type, a quick review of the MBTI binary quality pairs, and then finally re-examining my experience with that lens of type in mind. And I hope the story time angle will really anchor the framework of type in a more concrete way for you as you listen in. Plus, who doesn't love a good parable, right? So as a starting point, an overview of a child's belief creation or belief imprinting process. So as humans, we come into the world without knowing much of anything. We have experiences and they make our bodies feel things. Our bodies remember and make associations. One experience may or may not have a permanent association, whether good or bad. Basically, that's going to depend on the severity of our response to a particular stimulus, what happened before and after, and if that was repeated. And, you know, if it was repeated, did it go the same way or did it go differently? And a lot of the associations that we make have to do with our relationships to other people, how we relate to them, how they relate to us. You know, things like, do they comfort us tenderly and make the bad things less bad? 
Or do they ignore us or maybe even get hostile toward us when we do certain things or when certain things happen? We're like little sponges and we just kind of soak in everything and we're constantly reevaluating and shifting our associations as new ones come in, just kind of trying to make sense of it all. This is not necessarily a conscious level process. This is just how our memories are forming, how our memories are being filed according to the emotional tones that we experienced. And as we start to have more and more associations, you know, with different actions, with different situations, with different people, we will adjust our actions to get more of the positive and less of the negative experiences. As babies, toddlers, very young children, this is pretty instinctive. As older children, and honestly, even into adulthood, it's sometimes kind of semi-conscious and sometimes entirely calculated. Basically, we either form or reiterate or undermine previously formed beliefs based on the responses that we get. If I do A and then B, bad thing happens, then A must be bad. I don't want to do A. And depending on, you know, how our caretakers and our culture indicate that A is bad, we might form a belief that doing A is the same as being A. Let me ground this in an example so you can understand a little better what I mean. If you have a small child and, you know, they're squabbling over a toy with a sibling and they they hit because that's their anger and their frustration and that feels natural to them to express it that way. And you say, don't hit your brother. Hitting is bad. Good kids don't hit. Like, if you're saying that as an adult, you think that you're sharing a correction that, hey, don't do that behavior because we don't want you to be bad. Don't do it going forward. Don't be bad going forward. But to a child who was just caught hitting someone, that can actually sound like you did a bad thing that a good kid wouldn't do. Therefore, you are bad. And that might not be what the parent meant but that can easily be what the child receives because we're making these associations implicitly a lot of the time. That means we might not be getting the actual direct words, you're bad. We're making an inference based on information around what happened. So in this case, we don't have to say you're bad for the child to start to believe it or at least fear that it might be true that they might somehow be capable of becoming bad or being bad. And if they're bad, is that going to jeopardize the love and acceptance of their caretaker? And so they start to choose their actions out of fear, not necessarily out of authenticity. They're choosing actions to avoid being bad, not because those are the actions they want to take or the actions that really align with how they're feeling or what their needs are. Repeat this type of emotional association making a hundred times a day all throughout childhood and you can form a thousand fear-driven beliefs that no one around you ever intended you to have. And that's on top of anything that you were explicitly taught about how to act and what to do and who to be. As people, we need other people. We need to be accepted. We need to be loved. And if we don't feel confident in having that no matter what, 
then we change our behavior to make sure as best we can that we're going to get it in the ways that we know how to. So let's look then at the case study of my childhood and the experience I was having within my family. I'll set the stage by saying a lot of my family culture was set by my dad's mom, my grandmother. She was an educated, opinionated, bossy, busy woman. I adored her, by the way, and she taught me a whole lot of wonderful things that I will be grateful for for the rest of my life, and she would agree with all of those statements. She was very social. I'm talking like five or six days per week. She had some kind of social engagement, and she was very community-minded, charity-minded, volunteer-minded. She kept an immaculate home. She was almost never truly idle or at rest. And even the times that she was, she basically chose to direct her attention toward self-improvement. This might be, you know, reading literature, reading history, reading literary fiction. Um, She wasn't necessarily into self-help books, you know, or or anything like that, but definitely uh, someone who liked to read important works. She was very proper, very gracious, and very image-oriented. So that was one template that I was given for how to be. And the other came from my parents. They are both field biologists and nature lovers. They can spend hours outside every day. In fact, they do do that every day, <laughs> like all, through, all throughout the year, year in and year out. They love doing work outside, whether that's flower gardening, landscaping, vegetable gardening, tending animals, or more leisure things like bird watching and hiking and butterflying. That's, you know, hunting down butterflies to look at and take pictures of and just all of it. (laughs) They love being outside and they love being active. They love using their bodies in maybe not super strenuous ways, but, you know, all throughout the day, they're active. On the other hand, as you might expect from biologists, they're not especially people-oriented, you know, socially, and they don't especially care about their image. Uh, They're not (laughs) in the first stare of fashion unless, you know, binoculars and big pockets are what you consider the first stare of fashion. So these were my standards for what was normal. Those were the normal levels of activity and body energy that I had. The normal pursuits, I was told, should be fully immersing and engaging, either being active and civic, being active outside, being active cleaning the house, active cleaning the property, you know, just all very grounded, practical, salt-of-the-earth type stuff. And my family are intelligent, educated people. There was, there was attention paid to ecology, to politics, to conservation, to environmental ethics, to art, to the improving side, you know, of culture and, and the arts. So that was my family. Let me tell you about me when I was a kid. I liked reading fantasy books. I liked being lost in my imagination. I liked knowing the why behind everything. I preferred socializing either one-to-one or in small groups. I did not like big social gatherings. I got 
exhausted trying to keep up with the schedule that I perceived as normal, trying to be as active as my family or, you know, on the times we were, say, on a family vacation, having to live at the level of everyone around me. I hid that because I believed there was something wrong with me for it. Or maybe, honestly, (laughs) I was just shown too many times that I just had to keep up. You know, don't be lazy, don't be such a little princess, that kind of stuff. Maybe some of both. I often found myself paralyzed when I was asked to do things because I was kind of just told to do it. And the adults found it obvious and expected that I would see what was obviously to be done. And I, I couldn't sometimes. I just really did not understand what I was being asked to do, like what the flow of that action was supposed to be. I struggled with insomnia. The lights would go out and my mind would come alive and I'd get more and more awake as the night went on. I couldn't just turn it off as I was told to. Counting sheep did nothing. None of the advice that I was given did anything to help. So I just felt like some kind of freak who couldn't even figure out how to fall asleep. I felt like I could only share with my family the parts of me that looked like them. Like I remember very distinctly being in second grade and censoring the answer to the question, what are you thinking about? You're what, seven years old in second grade? And that's the point where I had already realized that if I gave an honest answer, it would not go well for me, that I'd get a lot of pushback and a lot of criticism or where is that coming from or incredulity. Yeah. And those are just the ways that I wasn't like my family's template. There was also the social feedback that I've mentioned before. You're so weird. I've never met anyone like you. I've never met anyone who thinks like you. You're very unique. You're smart. All of it was just this litany. You're not like us. That was the message I got. And that was my experience. I didn't see anyone in my world behaving in the ways that I wanted to, the ways that felt natural to me. But it never occurred to me that the world was the problem or that my examples were the problem. It was always just, I must be the problem. I'm the one who's broken or defective or not normal. I'm not what I was supposed to be. I'm not what everyone wants me to be. I'll interject here just because that sounds like really bleak. (laughs) I had two best friends who also had big imaginations, who also liked fantasy, who also liked playing one-to-one or a small group of the three of us, and who also didn't fit their templates either. Uh, Maybe they had slightly different templates than mine and slightly different ways they didn't fit, but all the same, we were this little trio of weirdos together, and I'm still very close with both of them. So there was some light here. I was, (laughs) I wasn't, it wasn't all bad. And there was love in my family. There was there were good times. I'm not trying to say that there weren't. It's just there was this pervasive sense of otherness. And it really was very lonely. And it really did leave a mark on me. But let's leave the story of me for now. And then go back to last week's episode, the framework of MBTI and Jungian type. And really, I'm just going to focus on the MBTI, how it measures those four binary trait pairs, because I think that will be enough to illuminate the situation that I was in. 
So broadly speaking, the personality type preferences that are being measured are, again, there's four of them. Uh, first of all, introversion and, or extroversion. Basically, whether your primary reality is located internally, which would be introverted, or externally, which would be extroverted. Two, the main way of learning or perceiving the world that you have. And this is a choice between intuiting and sensing. Intuiting is abstract and future focused. You're looking at patterns, ideas, symbolic meanings, possibilities, or maybe inevitabilities. Sensing is concrete and tangible, past or present focused. It looks at lived experience, what can be perceived with the body and its senses, like the physical senses, what others that you trust <laughs> have already established as true or optimal. So which way do you learn between those two? The third quality it looks at is your main way of making decisions between thinking and feeling. Thinking is looking at rational, logical, objective criteria, is making goal or principle focused decisions. Feeling is a values based decision making process. You're looking at the emotional or the human impact of a decision and that's what guides you. The fourth one is your main way of interacting with the external world. This is the J or P. It's the, the least obvious of all of them. A J type, a, a, ju a judging type is trying to affect the outer world. You're trying to organize it or order it in some way. Basically, you are trying to rearrange the outer world to suit your needs or your perception of what's right or what must be. And a P, a perceiving type, on the other hand, is more improvising and exploring. There is they're, they're attempting to discern or experience the outer world, not necessarily to change it. And I think I hinted at this last time, but it's maybe worth saying a little more overtly or reiteratively this time. Not all of the types are distributed equally in the population. And even just looking at these, these four binary preference pairs, there is one in particular that has a very extreme difference, and that is sensing and intuiting. Sensing preferenced people outnumber intuiting preferenced people by a margin of like three or four to one. So basically the world is designed by and for sensing preferences. A lot of cultural norms and behavioral expectations are built around sensing preferences. So let's pick back up with the story of me and examine my family culture with this lens in mind of these four qualities. Reviewing the constant activity and engagement in the outside world, the constant doing of things and the busyness and the high energy levels. Sounds like extroverted, right? Yes. And what about the grounded, practical, tangible, here and now, physical work? Does that sound like intuiting or does that sound like sensing? If you guessed sensing, you were right. So we have two. Now, based on what I said earlier, I think the thinking, feeling, and judging, perceiving would be a little less obvious. 
in fact, they were kind of mixed expectations because, yes, there were a fair number of rules to follow, which might be more of a thinking preference for decision making. But then also there was a lot of being passionate and sort of following that to the ends of the earth, quite literally, uh, in the case of field biologists. And that maybe is a little bit more of a feeling type of decision making. And then with the judging perceiving, you know, my grandmother was very regulated with her calendar and her social engagements and her orderliness. And my parents were more free-flowing, kind of go with the flow. Let's just experience the world and everything in it. So, you know, the main things that I wanted to kind of highlight is that there was a very strong preference for extroverting and for sensing in my family, in the template that I was given for what is normal. Now let's look back at me. Hmm, okay, a kid who likes reading, playing one-to-one, who likes to daydream, who gets exhausted being busy all the time, who comes alive at night when all the lights are off and all the thoughts in her head finally get to be heard. Does that sound like extroverting to you? Or does that sound like introvert? I really hope that sounded like introverting to you because that's exactly what it is. So that was one place where I was misaligned to my family. Now let's look at how I behaved when I got to do what I wanted. I read fantasy stories. I got lost in my imagination. I wanted to talk about the deeper reasons for things in the world. I didn't understand so-called obvious tasks or how to do them in the physical world. I was frequently thinking along lines that none of them seemed to follow or expect so that I learned to not admit to my thought process. Does that sound like grounded, tangible, sensing-based learning to you? Or does it sound more like abstract, pattern-seeking, meaning-seeking, intuiting-based learning? Hmm. (laughs) Yes, very much intuiting. And again, my family, very heavy on that sensing preference. So this was a second misalignment. The others were less misaligned because, of course, I had two different templates, you know, one from my grandmother thinking and then my parents expressing feeling, one from my grandmother expressing judging and then my parents expressing the perceiving, the J and the P, the T and the F. But even just having those two, those two pairs out of the four misaligned, I cannot overstate how painful that was for me to feel so different from my family for my role models, my guides, the people who were supposed to teach me how to be in the world, the people who were supposed to love me. I mean, they did love me, but sometimes it was really hard for me to hear that because there was this constant refrain in my mind, this constant recognition of being different and feeling inadequate, feeling weird and sometimes being told I was lazy or difficult or confusing, complicated, fussy, sensitive. Every time I said or did something that they didn't expect or that didn't live up to what they thought I should be capable of or or whatever else, like that was the message that I heard. 
They loved me. They just also expected me to be like them, and they couldn't understand why I struggled with that. They couldn't help me understand why I struggled with that. And the reality is that no amount of love can make up for not being allowed to be what you are, for not being celebrated for being what you are, because you can't change what you are. All you can do is lie about it <laughs> and, and then worry what's going to happen if somebody ever finds out the truth. And really what happens is you get older and the lie becomes more and more exhausting and you run yourself into burnout and realize that your entire life is misaligned with what your actual needs are. And then you have to, you know, tear it down and start all over and, you know, zero out of 10 cannot recommend. Anyway, why was this the case? Like, why, why was it so hard for my family to explain this to me or for me to, you know, to understand this? Well, here's the thing. My family didn't know type. It's not that type didn't exist. As we talked about, it's been around since the 1940s and Young's work has been around since the 1920s. But for a long time, it was confined to, you know, kind of corporate use and specialty educators. It wasn't broadly in the cultural awareness the way it is right now with the internet. So as it happened, you know, no one in my family had ever worked in a job that talked about type. <laughs> so they didn't have language around things like being introverted or being extroverted or, you know, being abstract versus being concrete. It would not have occurred to them that a child had as much or more access to symbolic thought as they did as adults. Knowing the difference between intuiting and sensing preferences, you know, you might be watching for that, right? And you might say, oh, I think my child learns in a different way. I think they perceive the world in a different way. But instead, it's more, why is my child so impractical? Why are they such a dreamer? Why are they so weird? And if you will indulge me, <laughs> I would like to read a couple poems, uh, not written for this occasion, they're actually part of a longer work, but two poems that I think speak perfectly to the experience I've described about kind of growing up as this odd one out, as this, you know, ugly duckling in, um, in a family of swans. So here's the first one. It's loneliest to be a child who yearns. Born into clutch of turtles as a bird, she stumbles in the tide to damp inured and chokes on sea foam as the water churns. Unsuited to that life, her body turns to tomb of dream-trapped flesh where she's interred. Her silent heart cannot express in word its formless, nameless need, so sharp it burns. There is no blame in speaking true and free. She's not the same. Her needs are not as theirs. A bird is never happy on the land. How can she learn what flying is when she can't see her wings or know to seek the air when no one there wants more than sea and sand? So that was the first one. Here's the second. She furled her wings in gravity's embrace and watched the blue horizons meld. No line between the sky and sea, one world erased as water covers blackbird in its brine. 
Surrounded by aquatic life, she longs to be a fish, because it's all she sees. Forgetting flight and wingbeat's subtle song, she rides the surface, banned from swimming deeps. Nor fish nor fowl, she struggles to relate, not just to them, but also self. A ghost, she cannot see potential lost, but hates her muted voice and salt-caked feathers most. Facades decay and warp as they suppress. The strongest parts will always manifest. That was the second one. And that was how I felt for a long time. As, again, you know, the odd one out, the, the one who didn't fit. But when I look at the situation that I was in, when I look at my childhood and my family through the lens of type, I see not a story of inadequacy or rejection or conditional love, conditional love being love that's based on correct performance of demands rather than, you know, just being there no matter what, right? That would be unconditional love. (laughs) I, I don't see those anymore. Instead, I see a story of just mismatched ways of being in the world and a lack of language to bridge that gap. It doesn't mean that I didn't hurt over it, but it means that I don't have to keep hurting over it. When I learned type, I was able to stop asking what was wrong with me or why my family wanted me to be something other than what I am. I realized I just have a different way of being and in the narrative that they had about what's normal and expected and what the range of human capacity is, my way of being didn't exist. And that's because, again, it's a more rare way of being. It was something that they didn't have a lot of exposure to and they just didn't know about. It didn't occur to them, man, that... (laughs) that that could have existed, that someone like me could exist. And that is a huge, like huge change of emotion and of the, you know, kind of potential that exists for connecting and being part of that family unit. And it changed just because I found a better narrative. Because I found a narrative that reflects reality more clearly and absolutely more kindly than what I had believed at the time. So yeah, type. It's awesome. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Okay, I did it. I got through. My voice is still working. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. If you want to know more about my work, you can check out thepatternbreaker.com follow me on Instagram at the pattern breaker. Swing by my Patreon, check it out. Join the party. Patreon.com slash narrative responsibility. I'll post the poems for you. And until next time, what part of your story are you going to take responsibility for this week? <laughs> <laughs>